feels like it's been a long time, so let's hop right in. Uh, I'm starting a new series based off of banned books. I will bring on a couple of different people. Nick Cataldo seems to be trying to convince the old man to do it as well. Uh, would love to get a girl, a girl's perspective in on one of these, especially with the bourbon tasting. Um, I've got a couple of friends that are in the bourbon industry, females, and uh, getting them on is would be exciting. But the books that I'm covering today, we've got One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey, uh, published in 1962. I think he wrote it in 59. And then I've got Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut, uh, and that was published in 69. So two books from the 1960s, banned uh, several times, each of them, if not more, uh, as early as 2011, or as recent, I guess, as 2011, uh, Kurt Vonnegut's book, Slaughterhouse-Five, was banned in, um, I think it was, they were trying to ban it in Illinois, but it had been uh, attempted at being banned uh, 18 times. He's responded to several of those attempts, um, saying it's unconstitutional um, to suppress free speech. And so he's won all of those, and same story with uh, Ken Cassie, at least in America, uh, both of these guys have escaped being banned for the most part, but there's been several, several attempts. So this is the very first installment of a, a much larger series. Going into Slaughterhouse-Five, uh, I had never read Kurt Vonnegut before, didn't know what to expect. Incredibly simple in his writing. And that is not to say that it's not brilliant. It, in fact, the, the ability to write so simply so succinctly, so concisely, and then also produce such uh, an effect that, I mean, I was left several times across both books, but especially with Slaughterhouse-Five, thinking to myself, wow, this is a really ugly side of human nature that we tend to look past. And that's actually probably why um, many of these books that I'm going to be reviewing have been banned or had attempts at banning them in the past because it forces the reader to look squarely into the face of like the very ugly side of humanity. Um, it forces you to look at, you know, violence and, and greed, um, weakness, cowardice, uh, the power uh, subjugating the, the weaker, the money struggle, the class systems, how, you know, America isn't that far from the feudal system and the way it works with how powerful the rich can be, it doesn't reflect well. So for Slaughterhouse-Five, it actually, when he was beginning to write the book, he met with an old friend who had been in his unit with him, and his old friend's wife at the time, uh, when he visited their house, was just causing such a stir, and was really upset, but wasn't saying anything, and finally he got it out of her that uh, she hated that he was a glorifying war. And... Uh, that's exactly the opposite of what he was trying to do with the book. He was, it was a scathing review of uh, mankind's uh, ability to be so violent with themselves or itself. And so he ended up agreeing with her and, and saying that, you know what, in fact, I'm going to increase this title of Slaughterhouse-Five to also include a child's or a children's crusade. 
And there's a few things in this book. Uh, he, he continues to use this, this phrase, so it goes, um, when something truly tragic happens. And he kind of has this resigned tone um, to the inevitable, inevitability of what happens throughout this book. And it's based off his own accounts of um, surviving through the bombing, the firebombing of Dresden. And herein lies probably the very most important point in why it was almost banned or continually was uh, having attempts on banning it was it paints the picture as not bad versus good, but merely both bad. Uh, the ally powers and the Axis powers are both committing uh, horrible atrocities. And this includes that firebombing of Dresden and his take on what's happening during it and what, what happened after. And at no point do you see any of these characters becoming heroes is, is another thing, is that there's no characters to really attach to and love in this book. The main character comes unstuck in time, and um, he's pleading the case of, I guess, the, the Earth to these aliens that have abducted him. Um, Trephalomordians, I think is how you uh, say their name. And he's unable to. Um, and he comes unstuck in time and jumps back and forth between the war and uh, his time after when he's, uh, I think he was a dentist. And it's just the whole time you don't really have a connect connection with these characters. You don't find yourself admiring any of these characters. And that was done intentionally. And it was just a really cool read. Um, this was my first like classic that I've reviewed for, for this podcast. And it's clear why it's a classic. His simplicity, like I mentioned, was... I mean, the, the word structure, the sentence structure, very clear, very concise. And apparently this is his writing style throughout all the books that he writes. And, and I loved it. Um, it. It forces you to look at yourself and at the power structure and at how society um, treats its poor and its uneducated and the homeless and all of these things. You, you kind of, it opens you up to things that, he doesn't even explicitly mention, but kind of insinuates. So, with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, this one surrounds a group of people that are in a psych ward um, in Oregon. Also set in the 60s. Also banned because it forces you to look at some of the issues um, that are swept underneath the rug. And one of the things that it focuses on is EST, uh, electroshock therapy, and treatment of patients. And I looked up, so this book was um, published in 62, and as a result, it seems EST fell out of favor in the 60s and 70s and almost was completely removed from um, treatment for people with depression or any sort of um, illness kinda, um, to do with their brain. And so I looked it up. I was like, oh, when did electroshock therapy end? Uh, and you'll be surprised to know, maybe, as I was, that it's still being used fairly frequently even today. Um, probably not as brutal, probably not used as punishment like it was in the book, but uh, Carrie Fisher uh, used electroshock therapy and said she was a big advocate for it and said that it helped with her depression. Um, Ernest Hemingway used it uh, almost, well, actually to the point where he started losing his memory um, about things that had happened in his life. And uh, David, Foster David Foster Wallace, who's a really incredible 
or was a really incredible writer in our lifetime um, used it as well. And all three of these people suffered still despite that. So I, that was sur surprising to me and it was pretty damning and I don't know why we still use it. It was actually, I'm still surprised to this, to this day we use something as barbaric as um, electroshock therapy. One thing that I thought was really curious about how Mr. Kessie sets this up is that it's narrated by um, what you discover to be a schizophrenic man uh, there in the, that wing, that psych wing. And what both of these authors do is they don't come out and say explicitly, like, um, I don't know. They, they insinuate a bunch of things, uh, or at least they force the reader to, to start looking at things that they're not outright mentioning, but it's clear that that's what they're trying to talk about. So, for instance, in this one, you're going through the book and you're, you're following this narration of um, Mr. Brompton, who's a, a schizophrenic, and he has episodes as he's narrating from time to time. And the reader, or at least I, got really confused at times. And I was like, is this really what's happening? And is this truly, like, is this how they're handling this? Or is this what's occurring right now? I can't tell if it's real or not. And I was getting frustrated. I was like, why did he do it this way? And I realized that this is probably what a schizophrenic patient goes through, where they're starting to question their own perception of reality. And I thought that was a brilliant tool. And I'm sure that's why it, again, it, it started receiving a lot of flack and uh, attempts at banning it because it's a tough pill to swallow how we, we treat the, our sick. Um, and putting you in those shoes of that narrator, Mr. Bromden, where you don't know what's real and what's not. And it's, it's scary. And it's, and it's a stark look at reality. Ultimately, I see why both of these books are so well regarded. I think they're important, and it's very important to look at some of these things. Um, I've read 1984. I've read Brave New World. I've read Animal Farm. I've read now Slaughterhouse Five and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And there's there's kind of a, a common theme with the reaction of the reader. And it depends on if the reader is going in with a closed mind or with an open mind, but there's always something much bigger than what the story is telling you. So animal farm, um, for instance, is about a bunch of farm animals, but it's the story has some underpinnings to it, which I will detail in a later podcast that are, that are tough. They're tough to, to face. They're tough to try to answer yourself because they're, they're naturally tough questions. And, all these writers are so brilliant at using very simple themes, very simple writing to create these profound effects. So it makes it really hard to say, hey, choose one over the cuckoo's nest over Slaughterhouse-Five because they both have very interesting styles. There's some similarities in how they attack these problems. Um, there's some differences in their style of writing. If I had to read one, I would read Slaughterhouse-Five. So, the ratings. Now that I've already given away uh, which one I'd read. Slaughterhouse-Five is probably... 
I'd say a four. And then one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I'd give it a three and a half. I'm sticking with it. It's just, it's like, it's not, <laughs> I feel like I have to tell, tell you more about these books because there's just so much that happens and I don't want to narrate the book back to you, but there's just these key moments where, for instance, Mr. Kessie's really good at, even in the darkest of moments, um, somehow he injects some like just subtle, dry humor and it's really funny and it's, it's hard, I think, because I've seen some comedians write books and they're trying to be funny in the books and it's not good it doesn't come across well and i've been disappointed by the humor of them but mr kessie who i would probably say is not a self-proclaimed comedian does it really well so it's it's hard for me to give it a 3.5 and say read slaughterhouse five instead but if you're looking for some more dry humor um maybe some more dialogue as opposed to like internal thought then read um, one flew or the cuckoo's nest ahead of slaughterhouse five. If you're looking for some introspection and some internal thoughts and some feeling, um, stuff about war and, and the tragedies, tragedies of society and how they utilize war for political gain, then read slaughterhouse five. All right. Now onto the bourbons. I'm, I'm calling this the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde of bourbon comparisons because on one hand, with Bell Mead, you've got a blended bourbon from four different bourbons from Indiana. And it's a resurrected brand. Uh, it used to be prominent prior to Prohibition, didn't survive Prohibition, um, went defunct. And um, two brothers from that family in 2006 discovered that there used to be a distillery in their family. And... They dredged up um, some of the old artwork. So this is the original artwork from the original Bell Mead um, distillery, but it hasn't it hasn't been um, in production for too long. Twenty fifteen. So they're blending these bourbons to try to get like um, I guess like a, a give it some age. Um, it only takes two years to be considered a bourbon. Um, but I guess in the competition against these craft distilleries and, and these larger um, bourbon distilleries that have been around for forever, it's really hard to compete. So bringing these blended bourbons helps. With this one, with Bell Mead, it's actually um, pretty interesting. I had never really known what sour mash really meant when it's included in the label. And it's a shower, sour mash whiskey and the thing about sour mash is it's used for materials in prior distillations which at initial thought i was like gross right but apparently it gives this like acidic it raises the acidic taste and that is a taste that people enjoy um it also takes some spice from it's rather high um rye content in its grain bill it's 30 percent um I think it was like 64% corn. What's funny is that, or what's interesting, I would say, is that Bell Mead didn't put out its grain bill. It was reverse engineered after the fact for, for people to discover that. So I thought that was interesting. 
Um, so that's Bell Mead, and that's my Mr. Hyde, my Dr. Jekyll, made in Kentucky, straight bourbon, six-year-old wilderness trail. Citrus uh, taste over the palate, especially initially, and it gives away to like some herbal, spicy um, flavor towards the end um, in the finish. It is a little bit higher proof. Bell Mead is a 90 proof. This one's a 100 proof. Um, so I can expect a little bit more burn on the finish, I would assume. A little bit more alcohol taste. But this is my Dr. Jekyll because it's from Kentucky. It's a straight bourbon. Um, no blended. While there's nothing wrong with blended, there's definitely... Um, a little bit of draw in the fact that this one's from a single bourbon. All right. I'm going to take about half of this in the first pull. I'm going to switch over to Wilderness Trail. And then I'm going to repeat that. Um, just get a full flavor profile of both. And then I'll give you some quick ratings and some recommendations. I try to remain unbiased. This being from Indiana. Ugh. I've got family there too, so listen guys, I don't like Indiana. I'm sorry. Oaky palette. Very nice subtle finish though. It doesn't stick for too long. Um but it's got some character to it. It's it's not empty, um, which I've had some complaints about some bourbons in the past with it lacking character. It definitely has some character. Um, there's some complexity there, some spiciness that has to come from the rye. It's such a high content of rye. I do enjoy rye, and I I picked Wilderness Trail to go up against this one because it also has a fairly high rye content in its grain bill at 24%. So I wanted to give it like give them a fair shot at each other. Um, so let's get on to Wilderness Trail. Oh, that, um, smells like fall. Does that make sense? It smells like fall. Like if you were like walking out, it's earthy. It smells like, um, say it just rained. It's autumn in Kentucky or somewhere in the Midwest. The leaves are starting to like return to the earth. It's that smell. It's like a fresh fresh rain on an autumn day. It smells like that. Am I getting good at this? Oh man. I tasted the citrus for a split second, and then after that, oh, okay. It does finish it a little bit. Got some herbs to it. Ooh, first shot. I'm going to... Uh, that one's more gradual. So, if this makes sense, the bell mead has all this complexity all at once. Just all happens all simultaneously. This one kind of starts 
sharply with the citrus comes down and then evens out with like an herbal finish. So you're, you're coming up high for a second and then it like kind of flows down into that herbal, much softer taste. Whereas with Belmede, it's, um, it's all there at once. Two quick more pulls, and then I'll give my thoughts on it. It's harsher. <clears throat> I, and I don't mean that... Maybe I could rephrase that. It's more robust. It's not bad. I've thought about this for a lot longer than you've seen on, on tape. Bell Mead... The Wilderness Trail six-year three. So Wilderness Trail wins out, and this is not biased because if you've looked at other podcasts, you know that I'll choose a Texas or an Ohio, um, Noble Oak. Shout out Noble Oak. You guys make a great bourbon, and I hate Ohio. If I had to choose Indiana or Ohio, I'd choose Indiana nine times out of ten. When people are from northern Kentucky and say that they're from Cincinnati, I don't, we don't, I'm sorry. I prefer the hillbilly Kentuckians over a Cincinnati native. And I got family in Cincinnati too. See, <laughs> hating your own kind. Listen, um, yeah, I would, I would suggest Wilderness Trail. Every time I've tried a Wilderness Trail bourbon, I haven't been disappointed. They're, um, in this market where everyone's competing for um, some sort of like niche where they get like repeat customers, there's a lot of shortcuts being taken. Um, and, and bourbon, you can't shortcut it. And it's hard to mass produce if you're a craft distillery to make enough product to compete with the big guns, you know, the maker's marks. I hate how they spell whiskey. They don't spell it right. Look it up. I mean, maybe they spell it like the old times, but like that was wrong. We're in 2022. Anyways, that wraps up the podcast. Um, Really excited to be back. Let me know what you think. Give me some suggestions for banned books or for for bourbons to try in the the future. Um, I will be bringing on people. I'm excited to be back into this. I'm in a new house, as you can tell from the different backdrop. If you've been with me since the beginning, I've moved a couple of times. It's exciting to be back. I love you guys. Until next time. And to think I almost forgot. A toast. To honor my grandfather. Up to it. A little bit left. Down to it. Damn the man that can't do it. Fresh, pure, and energetic.
energizing milk and bourbon on the rock. rock, rock.